Right, morning church. Um, the reading this morning comes from Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a, a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the reading. morning everybody. Uh, thank you Seb for reading and wasn't it lovely to see so many musicians on the stage this morning. Uh, it's, um, they're making a really tremendous holy noise. Um, after the service we have our church family lunch um, and I do hope you'll all be able to attend. If you didn't book last week because you weren't here please do stay if you would like to. Uh, we will make a plan. Uh, In the meantime, please keep your Bible open at Genesis chapter 11, and I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. Gracious God, we thank you that through the Lord Jesus Christ, You've made it possible for us to come boldly to you as our Heavenly Father. And as we look at this portion of your word, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would rebuke us as we need it, challenge us as we need it, and teach us as we need it. Please make this a very special time for everyone here today through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. How do you bring peace to a nation torn apart by hatred and bitterness? It's the question that many people around the world are asking at the moment as we watch the unfolding horrors in Gaza and Israel. 
It's the same question Nelson Mandela was asking back in 1995. He'd been president for about a year, and he was deeply troubled by the racial divisions that remained in South Africa from the apartheid era. But uh, that year, uh, South Africa were hosting, guess what? The Rugby World Cup. And uh, in the minds of, of many South Africans at the time, rugby was associated with white supremacy. Uh, but Mandela saw the Rugby World Cup as a heaven-sent opportunity to bring the nation together. So what did he do? Well, he, he summoned the Springbok captain and he shared his vision for the potential of a Springbok victory to unite the nation. It's actually at the time a very bold vision because the Springboks weren't actually fancied to do very well. They'd been uh, excluded from international competition for a number of years. But uh, they made their way through to the final where they met, who did they meet? The All Blacks, yes. And uh, against the odds, they beat them 15-12 in extra time. It was a dream come true. And uh, for a while, just for a while, the racial tension in this country seemed to be melting away. And both at home and abroad, I was in the UK at the time, so I watched these events from a distance. But uh, certainly from there, Nelson Mandela was considered to be a kind of messianic figure. In fact, it was such an extraordinary time that Clint Eastwood made a film about it. And the unspoken question in the film is, does sport, does rugby, hold the key to world peace? Now that actually is an important question because the longing for peace is hardwired into every human being. For a start, musicians want it. I think it was John Lennon, wasn't it, who famously sang the words, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Musicians want it, politicians want it. Uh, the United Nations was formed by politicians after World War II to prevent war and to bring all nations together in peace. And the religious people of the world want it. Islam, this may surprise you, Islam wants to see the whole world united and submissive to Allah. Uh, we've been reminded, of course, in recent weeks, they've got a rather strange way of going about it, but that is what they want. Indeed, all religions of the world want to see the nations of the world united under God. So isn't it strange that in spite of that kind of universal longing for harmony and peace, that our world is being torn apart by hostility and division, that far from being united, we're divided, aren't we, by racism, by religion, by culture, by money, and more besides. So our world, friends, is fractured 
and it is broken at every level. We see it, don't we? We see it in our families. We see it in our cities. We see it in our governments. We see it internationally. Instead of harmony, there is discord. Instead of peace, there's war. We are living in a broken world. Now, this morning, we're starting a brand new five-part series, and we're going to be thinking about why the world is like this. And in the course of the series, I want to show you that, in fact, there is only one cure. There's only one effective, stable solution to the problem of a divided world. It's the solution proposed and designed by Almighty God, and as the title of our series suggests, God's solution to the problem of a divided world is not sport, it's not rugby, it is the church of Jesus Christ. And uh, the message of our series is that the ordinary local church, a church just like this, contains within itself the seeds, or if you prefer, the DNA of a world where everyone will be at peace with God and with one another. Now, of course, I know perfectly well that many people today think that the church is totally irrelevant and that what I've just said is laughable, even outrageous. And, of course, it will be immediately dismissed by all those people whose experience of church has been painful or tense. Nevertheless, I believe it to be absolutely true and that it is the message of Holy Scripture. And I want to try and persuade you in the course of this series that committing yourself to the fellowship of a local church and building deep relationships deep relationships with the people in it might prove to be the most significant thing you do with your life. Well, that's quite a big challenge, isn't it? I've got to do my work, and I want you to stay with me. Before we go any further, I want to say a special thank you to Christopher Ash. Christopher is a much-loved Christian author and writer and speaker. I've known him for a number of years, and when I first told him that I was planning this series, he directed me to this book. It's called Remaking a Broken World. And let me say up front that with his permission and encouragement, we're going to actually follow the approach that he has taken throughout that book in our series. Why are we doing that? Well, we're doing it because with great skill... Christopher Trace is an absolutely fascinating theme that runs all the way through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. And the theme is scattering and gathering. So during the next five weeks, we're going to learn that scattering is a sign of God's judgment. We're also going to talk about what scattering is. And, of course, the consequences of scattering are everywhere today. But we're also going to see that gathering is a work of God's grace uh, to rescue scattered people and bring them together in the fellowship of a local church 
and give them a solid and substantial hope for the future. This morning, I'm afraid we have to start with the the bad news because we begin our Bible tour with the catastrophe at Babel in the book of Genesis, chapter 11. And uh, there are just two things I want you to notice from the chapter. First, we're going to be thinking about humanity's proud project. That's the first thing. And then the second thing we're going to look at is God's gracious judgment. So just those two thoughts, not too much after the late night I know you've all had. So, humanity's proud project. Are you with me? Uh, Most children uh, will be able to tell you the story of the Tower of Babel. I'm absolutely confident that if the kingdom kids came, that they could tell us the story in outline. But familiar as it is, as I was preparing, I discovered two things I hadn't noticed before. The first is that this particular story is not recorded chronologically in the book of Genesis. Now, that may sound to you like a rather dull and unimportant detail. It's not. Let me show you how we get there. Glance back with me, please, to chapter 10. Let's have chapter 10 open in front of us, where you'll find a couple of references to different languages. So chapter 10, verse 5, you'll notice there's a reference there to people spreading out. Now notice the phrase, each with his own language. And then a bit later, verse 31, we're told about the sons of Shem. So please look with me at verse 31. It reads, these are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages, plural, in their territories and nations. Now look down two verses to chapter 11, verse 1 which says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Now, friends, what that means is that the events in chapter 11 happened before chapter 10. You with me? So so the account of the Tower of Babel is not recorded chronologically, and the question is, why? The answer is that chapter 11 is the climax of everything in the Bible up to that point. I think most of you know that back in uh, July, I was in London, and uh, one of the famous tourist attractions in London is the most famous waxwork museum in the world. It's called Madame Tussauds. And in Madame Tussauds, the most famous exhibit is the Chamber of Horrors. And uh, in the Chamber of Horrors, in case you haven't been, let me tell you, it contains disturbingly realistic scenes of some of the most horrible people in human history doing the most horrible things. Now, one scholar has described the chapters before Genesis 11 as the Bible's Chamber of Horrors. These chapters tell us what happened after Adam and Eve rebelled against God 
and were banished from his presence. And they record some of the most horrible things in the entire Bible. There's murder, there's incest, there's revenge, there's social chaos, and there is, of course, the judgment of the flood. It's a catalogue, friends, of extreme chaos and human misery. And you see, the point is that by taking the story of the Tower of Babel out of its chronological sequence and putting it right at the end of these chapters, Genesis is saying that what happened at Babel is the ultimate horror story. What we're meant to learn from that is that this isn't something that happened only once. It did happen at a specific point in human history. Yes, it did. But what happened at the Tower of Babel is something that happens in our world again and again and again. And as we look at the story just a little bit more carefully, I want us to see, I want you to see, that every human relationship today lives in the shadow of the Tower of Babel. Every marriage, every relationship between parents and children lives in the shadow of the Tower of Babel. Every city, every suburb, every workplace, every nation lives in the shadow of the Tower of Babel. How do we get there? Well, it's a brilliantly told story. As we've just seen, it begins uh, in verse 1 by telling us that the whole world had one language. And you'll notice that it ends in verse 9 with the Lord confusing the language of the whole world. So there's one pattern. Notice it also begins in verse 2 with one group of people all moving together. And then it ends in verse 9 with a scattered rabble. Because the end of verse 9 says the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So let's just think about that for a moment together. It begins with one language. Everyone spoke the same language. And as you read that, you think, well, that's interesting. That sounds to me like a picture of harmony. And, of course, we understand this kind of thinking, don't we? Because, you see, I might say, Raymond speaks my language. Uh, He talks my language. And when I say that, I'm not simply saying that Raymond speaks English and I speak English. We're not just saying that, no. Uh, I'm saying that on all the big issues in life, Raymond and I are in complete agreement. We can work together because we speak the same language. Then in verse 2, we're to picture this this vast group of people migrating together, but there is now a disturbing note. Are you awake? It's important to spot this. Because we're told in verse 2 that they were moving eastward. Can you see that in verse 2? Now that is the second important discovery I made in my preparation because... In the book of Genesis, whenever anybody moves to the east, they're always moving further and further away from God. When Adam and Eve were banished from the garden 
They left on the east side. That's chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 24. After Cain had murdered Abel, he wandered in the land east of Eden, chapter 4, verse 16. When Lot separates from Adam, so after this story comes in a couple of chapters' time, and he chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan, he set out towards the east, chapter 13, verse 11. So there are three examples of people in Genesis moving east. And Genesis goes on to show us that in each case, they're moving further and further away from God, and they end their lives in misery. And here, uh, this apparently harmonious group of people who all speak the same language, they're moving eastward. They're moving further and further away from God, and uh, eventually they settle in Shinar or Babylonia, which today is Iraq. And uh, the first thing that these godless people do is to embark on a collaborative building project. Now, why? What was the purpose of the great building project? Well, the answer is there before you in verse 4. Can we see verse 4 in our Bibles? Verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So their number one purpose was to make a name or a reputation for themselves. They wanted to achieve a kind of immortality for themselves by their own efforts. And then secondly, they wanted to avoid being scattered over the face of the whole earth. So can you see one of the great ironies in the story is that the thing they least wanted to happen is what actually does happen. The point of the tower is not to give them access to God, no. The point of the tower is to put themselves in the place of God. So one writer makes this very helpful comment. He says, this is an account in which all the God-given abilities of human beings are deliberately focused on creating a society where God is unnecessary. End quote. So you see, as far as the inhabitants of this city are concerned, in Genesis chapter 11, God's irrelevant. And the tower is a kind of powerful symbol of human autonomy, independence, and pride. It's a sort of human, human harmony movement in which men and women were saying, let us work together, we will build a city, we will build a tower, and we will do the living in harmony thing on our own without God because... East of Eden, we don't need God. 
Now, one of the lessons, it's not the main lesson, but one of the lessons of this story is that kind of thinking isn't just proud, it's ultimately futile. I mean, just think of it. If there's this enormous tower reaching up to the heavens, look at verse 5, the Lord has to come down in order to see it. The uh, tallest building in the world today is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. It's 830 meters high, which makes it just a fraction shorter than Table Mountain. But here in this story, the architects of the Tower of Babel, they wanted their building to be even higher, as high as the heavens. They think their tower is seriously impressive. But in heaven, it's practically invisible. In verse 5, God, God happens to notice a tiny dot somewhere down on the earth, and he says, what is that? I, I think I can see something, but it's really, really small. I'd better go down and have a closer look. See, all man's efforts to make a name for himself apart from Almighty God are as feeble as that. They're doomed to failure. Now, why is that? Well, that brings us to the second thing that I want us to notice this morning, which is God's gracious judgment. Because God comes down to um, inspect the tower, and in verse 6, he sees something dangerous. Verse 6, the Lord said, if as one people, <coughs> speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, well, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Now, don't misread that. Uh, the point there is not that God is being defensive, as we might be when someone challenges our authority. No. The point is that the God of the Bible is the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. He made it. He alone knows what's required to hold it together physically, morally, spiritually. Which means, of course, that God cannot allow human beings to succeed in their attempt to be God without him. Because if he did, human society would be impossible. It would fall apart. J.D. Unwin was a highly respected historian. Uh, he had the unusual distinction of uh, holding a professorship at both Oxford and Cambridge universities. And uh, he wrote a book quite a, quite a while ago now, but a famous book with the title Sex and Culture. And uh, it's a survey of 86 different societies in the world spanning a period of 5,000 years. And in his book, Unwin noticed that whenever a society publicly rejects God's design for marriage, it's only a matter of time before that society crumbles. That's the evidence of 5,000 years of human history. So when we try and make a name for ourselves without God, at some point, 
God's got to intervene or society would fall apart. Which means that his intervention is an act of grace. So, here uh, the Lord says, let's go down and do, well, do what? Knock the tower over? I guess that's what perhaps we might do. But in verse 7, the Lord said, come, let us go down and confuse their language so they won't understand each other. That actually is so much more profound, isn't it, than demolishing the tower? Because if God did that, what would they do? Well, they'd just start building it again, wouldn't they? But instead, God confuses human language so that, listen carefully, never again will human beings be able to establish united, harmonious societies that leave God out of the picture. That's why, you see, from Babel onwards, human society has been characterized by poor comprehension and poor listening. Well, that's true, isn't it? And so, verse 8, the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel. That actually is a play on words, because in Hebrew, uh, Babel means Babylon, but it also sounds like the Hebrew word for confuse. And uh, that's the message of verse 9, the last verse in the passage. That's why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And so you see, throughout the rest of the Bible, Babylon represents communities where people might live in close proximity to other people, but there is relational distance. And so in the same way today, you know, in a city like Cape Town, we might be surrounded by lots and lots of people, but more often than not, we don't understand them, they don't understand us, we have different agendas, we're not all on the same page. And of course that's painful, isn't it? But you see, God's scattering also restrains our human capacity for collective godlessness. Because a completely godless society where everybody spoke the same language, that would be hell on earth. So, get to the point, Simon. What does all this have to say to you and me this morning? Simply this. That the moment I decide to live apart from God, to exclude God from my life, I become a tower builder. And so do you. And I begin to build a tower so that I can be God in my life. You do the same. My world revolves around me. Other people are only there for my convenience. But the trouble is that the same is true for you and for you and for you. And that's the basic problem of our world, isn't it? 
I'm a tower builder. You are a tower builder. And sooner or later, there'll be conflict between us. And the reason, you see, that all human relationships are so very difficult is that by nature we're separated from God. We've been scattered by our pride and self-centeredness. And the result is that we don't understand one another anymore. We just don't speak the same language. And there is an uncomfortable relational distance between us. Now, I guess someone might say, well, hang on a moment, Simon, that can't possibly be right. Because there are plenty of non-Christian marriages that stay together, and there are plenty of families where there's no Christian faith, but, you know, the family lives together more or less in some kind of harmony. And of course that's true. But it's only true because God, in his mercy and kindness restrains evil so that society can continue to function. So, you know, not all politicians are corrupt. They're not. Not all husbands are violent. Not all wives are controlling. Not all children are rebellious. So this world is not hell. It's not actually as bad as it could be. We don't actually fall apart as completely as we might. Now, why is that? Why is that? Well, maybe an illustration from the world of medicine will help us. As I'm sure you know, um, HIV AIDS is still a massive problem in South Africa. Still today, we have the highest number of people with HIV of any country in the world. So, of course, it was great news, wasn't it, when anti-retroviral drugs became available in this country. It was terrific. Because why? Well, these drugs slow the onset, the progress of the disease. That's not the best illustration in the world, but in the same way, God uses the spiritual equivalent of anti-retroviral drugs in our culture. And in his kindness, he slows the breakdown of society and relationships. Praise God that he does that. But we want something more. I mean, if you go to the doctor with a terminal progressive disease and he gives you some drugs that kind of slow the progress of the disease, yes, you're grateful. You are. But what we really want the doctor to do is to say, we found the cure. We want something that's going to put the disease into reverse. And in exactly the same way, we long for something that's not simply going to slow down the scattering of human beings. No, we want something that is actively going to put that scattering into reverse and bring people together in love and in peace and harmony. Now, the rest of the Bible tells that story. 
It's the wonderful story of how God provides not just restraint on human evil and pride, but a complete and total cure through the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you want to know about that, we don't have to be here next Sunday. Let's pray. Almighty God, here on the pages of Holy Scripture is a problem we can all identify with. We long for peace and harmony, but we find ourselves living in a world of conflict and brokenness and pain. And as we look at the tower builders in this story, we see our own foolish attempts to create a united world without you. What fools we are. But we know that you are powerful and willing to rescue us and to give us a solid hope for the future. So Lord, please use this series to open our eyes to see your rescue plan in the local church and give us hearts that are fully surrendered to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.